Dotnet Rocks, episode 1099, with guest Jafar Hussein. Recorded Friday, January 30th, 2015. Hi, this is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We're here again for .NET Rocks. Jafar Hussein is here. Very excited to have him here. But uh, how are you doing, my friend? I am well. You know, a lot of, it's, I got a couple of weeks at home. It's always good to get stuff in order. It's not covered in snow here, unlike some people I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a funny story. Jay came over to the studio last night. We ended up in my house uh, playing darts and drinking some bourbon and stuff. And he decided he wasn't going to try to uh, leave yeah, because the rain had turned to snow, and he was kind of skidding around a little bit. So, Yeah, that gets messy. But he stayed over. But this morning, I woke up about 8 o'clock to hear this. Uh-oh. He's got a BMW with back-wheel drive, you know, and uh, the thing has absolutely no snow sense whatsoever. Right. Yeah, no grip. <laughs> and, and we had, you know, my driveway, it's, it goes up. Yes, yeah. it does. And he did not. Uh-oh. So he's still here. <laughs> no, he actually he got out the shovel and cleared away the ice patch and salted it down, and he got up to the top, but then got stuck at the top, and I had to actually push him out into the street. How's the road? Because your road's pretty steep, too. Yeah, that road, I live on a hill, and it's pretty steep. So he, he ended up going up the hill just because the ass end turned around in the slipping and sliding it was kind of comical to watch actually i was half terrified and half laughing my butt off (laughs) (laughs) so it's all fun and games till you end up under a dump truck yeah i was just thinking you know he's revving it so high that if that thing catches he's gonna go flying into the mailbox across the street (laughs) that of course didn't happen no no oh glad he made it out adventures in snowland there you go well, I got something fun for uh, Better Know Framework. So. Oh, wow. Okay, hit me. What do you got? Well, I guess it's not fun, but it's very cool, and I didn't really know about this. It's the Microsoft Azure Marketplace. Oh, yeah? Yeah, go to tinyurl.com slash Azure Marketplace, or just Google Bing Azure Marketplace. You'll find it. Yep. And uh, so there's something like 3,000-plus products that you can install in Azure. Yeah, no, they've got everything in here these days. They got everything. And, you know, things that you Oh yeah. I could do that. You mean I could it's just like drag drop configure, boom, done. It's crazy. Well, the bigger thing is not having to set a whole lot of stuff up. Like Yeah. Not that I want to say anything bad about New Relic. We've had them on the show ages ago, but that's not a trivial product to configure. Right. The fact that you can buy the app service from Azure means it's just sort of pre-set up. You still got to put in a, some additional hooks and things, but it saves you a lot of work. So here's what I recommend. Even if you're not in the market to buy anything, just go look and see what's available. It's a good thing to know it's there. Yeah, the diversity is amazing. Good stuff. Nice find. Grab a cup of coffee, look through them. Yeah, who's uh, who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment off a show in 1090, not that long ago. That's the one we did with Todd Gardner. Yeah. We were talking about duck punching. Yeah. Uh, and got a few comments on that show, lots of tweets as well. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we talked about was this whole idea of, isn't it kind of frightening that you could be referencing a JavaScript library that isn't the library you think it actually is? It may be called jQuery, but somebody's altered it. Wouldn't it be good to have a CRC or something related to that? Mm-hmm. And Kevin Hackinson pointed us to one just like that. He wow. said, relating to the discussion of the CRC on a JavaScript request, take a look at the editor's draft of the next version of the W3C content security policy. Hmm. which includes inline individual scripts and style sheets that can be whitelisted via nonces, which is a concept in this policy, and hashes, which is, you know, a way of doing CRCs. And he actually includes a link to the GitHub file for the W3C on this specification. So it doesn't exist yet, but it's being developed. And it's absolutely current. You know, we're recording this show on January 30th, and this policy is last edited January 29th. Wow, no kidding. The exact issue we were talking about in that show only a week or so ago, two weeks ago, is something that's being worked on right now. That is so cool. Great find, huh? Yeah, I love it when it comes together like that. For sure. Kevin, thank you so much for your info. Very helpful for all of us. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps because we've got them for Windows Phone 7 and 8, iOS, Windows 8, and Android. 
And that brings us to our guest, Jafar Hussein, who's the cross-team technical lead for the Netflix UIs. He is the architect of Netflix's UI data platform and specializes in building reactive, event-driven systems. A highly rated speaker, he's spoken at QCon, HTML DevConf, Code Mesh, Yao, and given Channel 9 interviews. He's also trained hundreds of developers to build event-driven systems in JavaScript. He's the Netflix representative on the JavaScript Standards Committee, that's TC-39, and is actively working to evolve the JavaScript language. Well, I'm glad somebody's doing it. Thank you, Jafar, <laughs> and welcome. Hey, Carl, how's it going? What's that like, trying to evolve the JavaScript language? I mean, there's so many people involved. How do you do that? Well, you know, I mean, I think when I first decided, you know, I'm going to join the standards committee, I really didn't know what to expect. This is the first standards committee that I'd served on. And what I found, you know, and you, you hear kind of stories about politics and infighting and, and there are, you know, I think there's the, the committee's populated by large companies and each has their own sort of agenda for the yeah. future of the web. And so there are agendas, but I think more than any of that, there is a group of individuals were there, not necessarily because they're paid to be there, but there because they care deeply about the evolution and development of the web. And so mm. they all want the same thing fundamentally, but they may have different ways about getting there. And, and it's really been an extremely positive experience. A lot of intellectual heavyweights on that committee, and it's just an honor to watch them work sometimes. Wow. I, I can't imagine what those meetings must be like. Uh, you know, sometimes they're contentious, but uh, the, the truth is, I mean, you know, Continually, they've got the uh, the com the community's best heart in mind, right. and it's it's a slow process evolving a language because you know the thing about programming languages is you don't make mistakes. You don't make mistakes in the you know the web's programming language. It's and so that's why all the care and all the caution. In fact, I think ES six the spec was actually just sent out. We just had our last TC thirty nine meeting, hopefully where we talk about ES six and we sent the the spec off. And so very soon it should be official, uh, approved by ECMA. Yeah, we talked to Rob Eisenberg just last week, didn't we, Richard? And yeah, we did, and he was talking about implementing ES6 stuff with some of the projects he was working on. Yeah, very cool. Just as a coincidence, then, is this whole content security policy thing something on your radar? Not really, to be honest. Um, yeah. I, you know, It's not something I've paid a lot of attention to. I can't quite comment it on intelligently here. Because it's not really language-specific. This is more about... Um, directives and policy, right? Mm. Just this idea of being able to enforce. If this is really jQuery 3.1.2, then this is the hash that will be associated with it. Right. That's really outside the purview of the TC39 and really, you know, belongs for, other, it's, that's for other standards committees to, yeah, to focus sure. on. TC39 is strictly speaking the JavaScript language. Of course, we do talk to, you know, the other uh, committees that are shaping the web and we try and sync up, obviously, but that specifically wouldn't be within our purview. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. You can't have it all in one big pile. It's, it's too big a pile. It sure is. <laughs> yeah, but it's got to be. It's got to be a lot of fun. And Netflix is one of those companies. I think a lot of people look to for sort of uh, best practice, or you're almost like a unicorn company. <laughs> we can't hope to be like you. You know, <laughs> Adrian Cockcroft came from there. Like just an amazing group of folks. You know, I I reference Netflix in sort of terms of. These guys consume like 25% of the bandwidth in the evenings in the United States. How do you load <laughs> test that? Because that's a problem. Yeah, I mean, I tell you, it is a big problem. Now, a lot of that load, to be fair, is coming off a of CDN somewhere, right? Because right. that's where movies are hosted. It's coming off of CDNs. And so, you know, CDNs to some degree are kind of a solved problem. That doesn't mean there's not engineering that goes into choosing the right CDN, of course, right? For you and your, you know, your location, there's a good deal of engineering that goes into that. Um, but, you know, also we've got a huge amount of load from people just using the application. That's like real time, you know, processing data requests. Um, you know, millions and millions of requests. And so there's a lot of en intelligence and engineering that goes into scaling that, like live requests from, say, the Netflix application for metadata. And, you know, as you scroll through your, your recommended list of genres and movies. I know we've talked about this a little bit before, but what is the Netflix application written in? You know, what, what are the different apps written in? Well, so there's a few apps, but the majority of them are written in JavaScript. There's a few native experiences like Android is a native app, but almost every app we are converging on JavaScript. In fact, right now we're looking at rewriting our Windows, the, the app that's targets, say, Windows 8 to use uh, JavaScript as well. Right now it's a C-sharp solution. We want to be as much into JavaScript as we possibly can. So um, I, I just heard that YouTube has ditched Flash for HTML video. Finally. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. Yes, it certainly is. I mean, 
Uh, if, if, you know, if you're kind of asking us when we're going to ditch Silverlight, uh, I know that comes up quite a bit. Um, and of course, we're, we're already working with the standards community to uh, put in in place the um, the media extensions required to allow DRM to be used with HTML5 video. Uh, and you know, that's a controversial topic, but the reality is we've made quite a few inroads there um, with, you know, Mozilla and, and IE and Chrome. And, and so I, I, you know, I think that's going to be the future of Netflix. Um, I don't know exactly when, but you know, HTML video should be the future of Netflix. It, it seems like everybody wants an HTML video solution, mm-hmm. a non-plug-in video solution, and DRM just has to come along for the ride. It's not optional. Yeah, I mean, the reality is out there, content providers want DRM, and so you've got the choice of, you know, proprietary solutions to deliver this content, right, that, where it just stays outside of the web and you've got these plugins forever. Right. Or, you know, we look, we acknowledge the fact that content producers want to protect their content. You know, this isn't my opinion necessarily. This is, I'm not really necessarily representing the perspective of Netflix. This is just the reality that content, content producers want protection for the content. And so how can we do this in a way that's still kind of an open web where we, we introduce, you know, extensibility to the HTML? And that's really what this is about, I think. Extensibility to the HTML5 spec so that right. people can implement their own encodings. And uh, that brings us to the asynchronous stuff that's in ECMA 6. Do we call it ECMA 6 or we call it JavaScript next? What do we call this language? You know, and I mean, I think they're the, the community of people that care deeply about you calling this ECMA 6 are pretty much the people on the, the committee. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of people outside there. Look, the reality is JavaScript developers call this JavaScript. I think, okay. you know, JavaScript's a bit problematic because it's encumbered by Oracle, but I think when I'm trying to communicate with people and tell them what I'm talking about, ECMAScript doesn't go very far. And so I tend to use JavaScript or ECMAScript depending on the community I'm talking to. When I'm talking to the wider community, I use the word JavaScript because they understand what I'm talking about. So if you're talking to the community, you want to differentiate six from five. Do you just say JavaScript six? I do. And then that is not strictly speaking correct uh, right. because, of course, you know, like there's, you know, Mozilla and they have they, that to some people means JavaScript 1.6, which is their sort of proprietary extension. Uh, here we go. Yeah. I, I, you know, I mean, I think to most people, either ES6 or, you know, JS6 means the right thing to them that, okay. that sort of, you know, lands. And so that's, ten- that tends to be what I say. And so we have promises, right? Is that, that the, one of the big features of ES6? That is definitely one of the big features of ES6. Uh, and, you know, a lot of folks ask, well, you know, why did you put promises into the language? I mean, there's so many promise libraries. Isn't this the type of thing that can be done with a library? Right. I think in general, you know, the committee looks hard at, you know, trying to bless one approach or another. We really want to look hard and sort of say, look, we want the web to be an open place where people can have choices. And the committee isn't there to just hand down solutions. Um, but I think the issue here was that promises were wanted by the DOM. And there is, JavaScript 6 does something that I don't think a lot of people are aware of. It's a subtle thing, which is that for the first time, JavaScript is actually taking control of the event loop. Let's say one of the contracts behind, one of the, and this, you know, right now that was sort of just hosted, like whatever your host is, it's the browser, it's Node, um, it will call you and JavaScript itself doesn't worry about the event loop. And that worked well for a lot of years, but there's something about promises that makes that less than optimal. And that's that promises always asynchronously respond. So even if a promise is resolved already and it's got its data cached, if you, you know, handed a callback to then, to the then method, and it already has the data, there's two options. One, it could synchronously invoke that callback, and the other is that it could asynchronously invoke that callback. Now, for whatever reason, the designers of the promises A spec decided, look, it should always asynchronously call the callback. And, you know, to be fair, that makes things a little easier. You won't end up, it's easy, it's, frankly, it's easier from the developer's perspective to code because they don't have to worry about side effects happening as soon as they call then. They can sort of ensure that, look, that's going to get called asynchronously. I can finish out this function. No side effects are going to be introduced right in the middle of my code when I think something's going to be a callback API. All right, and I need to back up to the beginning of that long sentence and yes. deconstruct that for the mere mortals. So <laughs> let's start with what a promise is. And right. and also I want to, because it is an asynchronous kind of construct, but uh, I also want you to uh, see if you can relate it to the C-sharp async await um, syntax or, or construct. Absolutely. So let's start at the very beginning. What is a promise? Well, a promise has a heck of a lot related, is a heck of a lot similar to task, task of T for those C sharp developers out there, right? Mm. It represents an eventual value that will arrive asynchronously. And so you don't have the value, but you've got this, think of it as a box from which, you know, it's like Schrodinger's cat. When you open the box, 
that the, the cat may be alive or the cat may be dead. If the cat's alive, you've got a value and it's great and you can use it. Mm. If the cat's dead, well, you know, there was an error. And so those are the two possible outputs of a promise. You got a value or you got an error, just right. like a task. Yep. I just like the idea of a dead cat being an error. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what if that was the desired outcome? <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Come on, guys. There's cat lovers out there. I'm sorry. I'm sure there's a few. <laughs> anyway, uh, we could go down that rabbit hole. But So getting back to you know that the really long, confusing sentence that you said, let, help us deconstruct that. Because I know, I know there was a lot of people whose heads were spinning. Right. Well, so let's take it one piece at a time. When you, if you want to get the value out of a promise, you give it a callback and it pushes the value at you, right? If I, if I call a regular old synchronous function, the value is delivered to me in the return position of that function. I go var x equals and then I call a function. It kind of pops out to the left. And that's what I'm going to call a pull function mm. where you're pulling a value out. You as the consumer are in control of when you get that value. You say, Hey, you call this function and the, you know, the thread's going to block. Until you get your value out. Yeah, so you're, you're going to wait. For, exactly. You're, you're, well, I'm going to use the term block, not wait, because okay. I'm going to differentiate between those two things. Yeah. In this case, you block because that thread is going to, it's not going to go forward. Nothing else is going to happen until you get your result out on the left hand side. You go var x equals some function call, right? Yeah. That's a synchronous function. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to call that a pull function for the purpose of this discussion. Sure. Now there's another thing you can do, which is instead of block, you can wait. Now, it's still the same concept. You don't want to do anything until after the function is finished, and then you want to take that value and you want to do something with it. But instead of blocking it, in other words, pinning that thread, you can wait. And the way that works is you can have that function become an asynchronous function using async function, and then it's going to return a task immediately, synchronously, but that's not the real eventual value. Then you use continue with to hand that task a callback. And then eventually, and that's effectively waiting because now nothing's, the thread is, you know, it's back for, it's can go back in the thread pool and do more work. Mm. And it's only when that callback gets invoked that you resume and continue doing something. And now how do you get that data? Well, your callback is invoked and the data is delivered in the argument position of the callback. And so it's being pushed at you. So it's very much like async await. It, yes, it's very much like async await. In fact, in the, there's currently a proposal for JavaScript 7 to actually add the async and await keywords to JavaScript yeah. to take advantage of promises. That would be great. <laughs> it's just syntax. What I find um, maddening about it, what I found maddening about starting to do asynchronous programming, like with jQuery, for example, uh, is that the old, you know, the, how shall I say, the C sharp mindset doesn't work. You know, because JavaScript is functional, you expect to make a call and get a and get a value back. And oops, you're on a wrong thread. You can't access any of your of your UI. And so, just like we have, well, that sort of goes away with async await in C sharp in a in a Windows app, for example. But that's not the way that it's done. In fact, how you do it in JavaScript is you pass a, the function that gets called asynchronously. Right after something is done, and then that function receives the value. Just that upside down thinking threw me for a loop when I started programming JavaScript, and and I wonder if if that's here to stay, or if we're you guys are trying to make that a little easier to digest. We're definitely trying to make it easier to digest, Carl. And and really, the first part of that ES6 is really the beginning of a story. It's it's like the start, the starting of a story where we put in place simple primitives like promises, and then on top of that, we build in syntax, just as they did in C sharp. They introduce task of T, mm. and then in the next version of language, they introduce syntax to make it easier to work with those primitives. Yeah, because man, it would be great if we could just do that async await. Don't even worry about the thread. You're still there. Something else went out and did that, and then it came back and got you your whatever data, and you moved on. Absolutely, Man, that would be awesome. And so I want to, I want to. I I, there's a couple terms I want to just cement as we go forward here. When you call a function, a synchronous function, you get a value out on the left hand side. Mm. The consumer's in control, right? And it's, mm. it's the, the whole thing. The whole thread gets blocked. You block, and then the value comes out. When you're working with an async function in JavaScript, it's something that returns a promise. Mm. It's push, not pull, because you hand it a callback yep. and it pushes the value at you. In this case, the producer's in control of when the value gets delivered to you, right? right? They're in control of when they call your callback and they push the value at you. Right. 
So promises are great. I mean, then just this task of T is great, but it's not the only async type out there on the block. And because promises by themselves don't solve, nor do task of T solve a whole range of other problems. Mm -hmm. uh, there are asynchronous data sources that send more than one value. So promises are the one and done model as our task of T. They call you once mm -hmm. and then it's done. But what about things like events? Yeah. What about things like web sockets? What about things like um, IO streams, right? Yep. These are things that are asynchronous. They push values at you by invoking your callbacks, but there are many of there's They deliver many values, and then they may have an explicit end message, or for that matter, they may also have an error, which stops things. How do you deal with these data sources? And I mean, this isn't, you know, this isn't an edge case. As soon as you start working with JavaScript, you're going to be working with DOM events all over the place. And that's a great example. Yep. So promises are great for composing together waiting operations. So like, you know, I, I make a request to the server and then maybe I play an animation. You want to compose those two things together. Promises work reasonably well for that. But then as soon as you, you know, maybe, maybe you want to do all this and you probably do when a DOM event fires. Well, a DOM event doesn't really compose together with promises in that same nice way that promises compose together, right? And is it because you have of, of UI threading? No, no. Well, so the nice thing about JavaScript is that you don't need to worry about this because there's only one thread, right? You don't need, it's not like in C Sharp where you need to make sure that you're on the right thread because you're always on the right thread because there's only one thread. Now, it, it, the reason why it doesn't compose so well is that let me give you an example. Like let's, let's think about this. Um, DOM events. Can, can you guys think of a DOM event that ends? Like what are, what's a DOM event that actually ends? Like click. For example, well, like a mouse down or something. So you can get one particular click, but the truth about click is that at any time anybody could click again. That stream of data is never really going to end, right? Because oh, right. at any moment yeah. the user could so click window again. Window loaded, for example. Yeah, dock loaded. Window yeah. load, exactly. Yeah. There's an example of an event that ends. But events do a funny thing. They do, which is, and it's different than, and what events really are, are pushing multiple values. Now, can you guys think of a pull equivalent of an event? Something where you pull multiple values out of a data source? It's just like a fetch of data, right? Yeah, yeah. But what's a type in .NET where I pull multiple values out until finally it says I'm done? A stream? Stream, yes. Uh, there's another one, more fundamental. In fact, you use it every single time you do a for each in C Sharp. What, an iteration? Iteration. I enumerable. So that's that API where I've got a, I'm, an I enumerable as a producer, and you, are, you as a consumer say, hey, give me an I enumerator. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to keep pulling values out of that I enumerator until finally the enumerator says done. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Are you getting toward uh, what we used to use the yield for? Is that what you're coming to? That's something along the lines of what I'm saying here, because you can use yield to create I enumerators, right? When yeah. you use yield, think about what you're really doing. You're uh, in, in an iteration. It's the consumer in control. The consumer gets to decide when they pull the next value and the producer's got to immediately synchronously produce it, right? That's how iteration works. The consumer's yeah. in control. But with DOM events, if you think about it, Iteration and observation are really the same thing. It's all about a producer sending items to a consumer, one item progressively at a time, until finally they say, done, I'm stopped, I'm all, I'm all finished. Yeah, that's enough. I got it all. Right. Now, with iEnumerator and iEnumerable, you know, .NET got it phenomenally, phenomenally right. They picked exactly the right interface to do this. And then later, what was built on top of that? Link. Right? right, we got linked because of I enumerator and I enumerable, and all of a sudden, all these sources of data were queryable because anything that you can pull items out of one at a time, you can query. One thing, though, that we didn't get right, and eventually .NET get, got right, but the entire industry got wrong, is how we think about push data sources. Because what's the thing about DOM events? We just mentioned one DOM event that can end, and one DOM event which is never going to end. The thing about DOM events is they don't tell you when they're done. Right, mm. a document on one's going to fire once, and then it's going to happily hold on to your callback forever. Yeah, right? so you come <laughs> along and remove event handler. And if you think about it, well, that's pretty stupid, right? It I mean, if, if document on load knows it's never going to call you again, it should just free your it handler for you. And while up. it's at it, might as well just tell you that, right? Right. The truth is, push and pull. These idea of push and pull functions are symmetrical. Anything you can do, any, any information you can pull out of a function, you can be pushed from a function. And so one mistake that we made in the industry, and this is almost 20 years ago to the day, with the design patterns book, you guys remember that book, that oh, Gang sure. 4 design patterns Gang book? They identified this observer pattern and this iterator pattern, but they made a mistake. 
they in the iterator pattern they had two clear signals look you know the you can send you can send data but you can also send a, an explicit completion message right that's how i enumerable works I enumerate tour works. It'll just say, I'm done if you yep. ask next. And what's the other thing you can do? Well, if you call next, move next, and you ask for the next item, it can throw. Right. So it can really tell you three things. It can say, here's some data, I'm done, and there was an error. Right. But if you look at the observer pattern, you know, all they did was have the producer have the ability to send to a consumer, hey, here's a message. They left out those two messages. Those two, uh, they didn't put in a common, well-defined way for a producer to tell a consumer, I'm done, or for a producer to push to a consumer, an error happened. Hmm. Right. Now, why did they make that mistake? They were only kind of thinking about events, right? And most events at the time and UIs just went on forever, right? Like they were thinking clicks. But now, 20 years down the line, we deal with push streams that end all the time. Like look at Node.js with asynchronous IO, right? Right. And so if you look at all of the different push APIs we have out on the web right now, we've got add event lister, remove event lister. We've got set timeout. We've got... We um, clearly you know, need an update teams. here. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a meatball for you. Go for it. <laughs> right. I mean, we have so many different... None of, all of these have different types. All of these have different signatures, right? Yeah. And so you, in, in the world of... You know, in the world of .NET, if you want to pull data out of a data source, you got one interface, and that is iEnumerable, iEnumerator. Mm-hmm. And but in the world of push data streams, you know, pick pick your poison. You got tons and tons of them. And so, what actually folks at Microsoft did, and this is about five years ago now, is they said, you know what, this is crazy. Let's just take the iEnumerable, iEnumerator interface, and let's turn it inside out. Let's just turn it inside out. And so let's take all the same concepts, all the same semantics, the ability to say, here's a value, here's an error message, here's completion, and let's put it on another type that is specifically for pushing information. And this one type is going to be capable of expressing all of these different push streams, whether they're ad event listener, set timeout, IO streams, all of that stuff. If you want to get asynchronously, if you want to get data asynchronously pushed at you, there's a one-stop shop interface. Do you guys know the interface I'm talking about? It was added to .NET in framework in, in version four. Uh, the interface for getting it. What is it? Uh, I observable. Yes. This was very, this was not, this is not thrown in the .NET framework with a lot of fanfare, but, um, it's actually a very, very big deal. And it's making its way now from the .NET framework into hopefully into JavaScript and out onto the web. That would be so great. Great idea. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, a fantastic idea and it came right out of Microsoft. Right. And, and I, people, and I think the incarnation was the reactive extensions library. Have you guys heard of the reactive extensions library? Sure. Yeah. Of course. So this type kind of, you know, at first, I don't think people understand the full significance of it, but now Rx, or with the Reactive Extensions Library, sometimes called for short, Rx, mm-hmm. is really taking off out there on the web. And people are realizing, hey, wait a second, I mean, I don't need N different a- APIs for my async, you know, push streams. I can just take all my APIs, express them as observables, and then I get the same benefit I get out of using promises over a callback API. Yeah. Because callback APIs are difficult to kind of glue together because, you know, the problem is as soon as you start doing push functions instead of pull functions, instead of, as soon as you start doing push functions, well, loops don't work for you. Try catch doesn't work for you, right? right? Try catch is not going to do a darn thing for you because we, well, language C sharp, provide special back in the day anyway provided special support for sync for thrown exceptions but no special support for pushed exceptions and that's what they fixed for async and await all of a sudden you could use loops you could use try catch even though information was being pushed at you yeah and you know another thing i observable gives you is uh binding right i mean i wonder what it does to angular and to uh all of these other frameworks that do data binding Frameworks like Angular are taking a hard look at Observable. I was just meeting with those guys a few weeks ago. This is definitely something they're taking a hard look at for Angular 2.0. Now, what we've done, the interesting thing about Observable is that we've taken this type and we've also taken features introduced in the JavaScript language and we've realized that we can actually do even more than they've done on the .NET framework. So the interesting thing at JavaScript has got a really interesting idea in it. It's not something you see in C Sharp, but uh, it's something that comes from languages like Python, for example. Uh, have you ever heard of a generator? Anybody? Yeah, sure. Right. So are you ta- you're talking about a generator pattern? The the generator uh, feature used in Python or now actually in JavaScript six. It's been introduced in JavaScript six. It looks a lot like C Sharp's yield. Okay, different thing than I was thinking. So you basically write code, you you yield, and p- out pops the iterator, right? And we're used to that iterator, that that i enumerable and pulling out i enumerator and calling next on it. 
But here's the funny thing about a generator. It looks like an iterator. The one being introduced in JavaScript 6 looks like an iterator, but it's actually a lot more to it. It's actually double-sided. So an iterator is a data source. You can pull out a value. When you attempt to pull out a value, you can get an error thrown at you. And if you attempt to pull out a value, you might get a completion message, right? Those three semantics. Well, the interesting thing about a generator is that that's what's a data source. It's something, an iterator is something you pull values out of. The interesting thing about a generator is it's not just a data source, something you pull values out of. It's a data sink. It's something you can push values into. So with a generator, it's really like two functions having a long conversation. With iteration, that's a one-way conversation, right? I, I ask the data producer for a value, and you yield the next value to me, right? And then I call move next, and you yield the next value to me. That's a one-sided conversation. That's a monologue, right? But with a generator, not only can I pull a value out, I can send a value back in. And this back-and-forth double-sided conversation can happen. Well, that reminds me, Richard, you know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to pull out a bad joke from the cupboard and push it down the sink. <laughs> it's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won today, Telerik DevCraft is the most complete .NET toolbox for web, mobile, and desktop development. With addition of UI for Xamarin to the DevCraft bundle, you can create compelling native mobile experiences with your C-sharp skills. Download a free trial at tinyurl.com slash devcrafttrial. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Well, today's winner just happens to be our friend Colin Wynn from the UK. No kidding. Congratulations, Colin. You know, sometimes that random number generator surprises me. And uh, Colin, yeah, he's a good friend. Congratulations. I don't know if he already has it, but if he doesn't, he's got it now. The Telerik DevCraft. Big pile of awesome from Telerik. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And we also like to ask our guests, Jafar, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? I would buy, I'd probably spend it on compute power. I'd probably spend it on uh, Azure or AWS, uh, a bunch of uh, servers and, and spin up some fun web apps and see how much load I could take. Get some Hadoop clusters, maybe? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What do you want to compute? Yeah, right. You know, that's always the problem with me. I'm, I'm itching <laughs> to use technology and I don't necessarily have a problem to solve. A solution in search of a problem. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I let the managers give me a problem and then I, and then I go execute. That sounds fun. So you're not making Bitcoins anyway. No, no. Although that's an idea right there. <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? Hey, so when is all this JavaScript goodness coming our way? Um, well, so JavaScript 6, as I mentioned, just sort of went out the door. But the good news is we don't need to wait for browsers to implement fee or for, you know, it's not like browsers have been sitting on their hands. They've actually been releasing JavaScript 6 features mm -hmm. as they, as individual features reach maturity and completion, they just go out the door. And so Mozilla right now, I think has got the most complete implement, the Firefox has got the most complete implementation of JavaScript 6. So if you, you know, you don't want to muss and futz, you just want to sit down and play with what JavaScript 6 has to offer, go download Firefox, hit that up. I know IE is following and they're going to be introducing a lot of JavaScript 6 features. You can expect that pace to really pick up now that the final spec has left the building and, and uh, we're, they're iterating on it. So, but as it stands now, though, IE doesn't support everything? No, definitely not. Um, and nor does Chrome. I think everybody's got a little, you know, they've got different pieces of the spec that they can play with. I mean, my most, the features I think are the most exciting are promises, uh, short Lambda functions, which look like uh, the C-sharp short arrow syntax. JavaScript 6 has got that, which is pretty amazing, pretty great. Um, and it's got destructuring, which I think is one of the, the, the best features in JavaScript 6. And for those of you who don't know uh, what destructuring is, you know how structuring works. It's just JSON. Structuring is when you can take a bunch of values and you know use a nice syntax rather than do a bunch of property sets. You can use a nice syntax and some curly braces. You can just throw values in. Well, destructuring is using JSON on the left-hand side of the assignment. And mm. so I can go var bracket x comma y equals point, and then it will actually pull the x 
property off of point and assign it to a local variable X and pull the Y property off of point and assign it to a local variable Y. Mm. And it's kind of mind bending at first, a little tough to get your head around. But what you find over time is that particularly when you're, you know, you're writing stuff like link or you're doing a lot of just data pipelining, it actually provides a visual representation. You can actually see it's on a list of instructions. It's a visual picture of data coming out of one data structure and ending up in another one. And so it becomes much more easy to understand, you know, pipelines where you're just transforming data. Ah. So um, another thing that I want you to clarify was the you said the key you're working on getting the keywords async and await into JavaScript. That's just something that you're trying now. Like that's not nowhere near happening, right? Well, so here's the important thing I want people to know about what about JavaScript 7, because that is targeted for JavaScript 7. Oh, it is. Um, JavaScript 7 is not going to take nearly as long as JavaScript 6. JavaScript 6 was a big effort. We had to get a lot of people back at the table, and we had to, it was a very big update, and a lot of stuff was to be done. But now that it's, we're going to try and ex- adopt like a train model, like what you get with software, where every year we release an update to JavaScript. And we just take whatever features are ready, we throw them on the train, and then we concur- we're concurrently developing the next version of JavaScript at all times. So we've already been developing JavaScript 7 for years now, at least a year, uh, and in, in, you know, concurrently with JavaScript 6, because we just didn't, you know, we took features that we didn't think would be ready in the JavaScript 6 timeline, and we just pushed them off to JavaScript 7. And so that combined with this new world we live in of evergreen browsers, that is all the three big browsers that auto-update, means that the web's going to start to evolve very, very quickly. It's going to start to really accelerate. So, you know, you could you could see JavaScript, you're already seeing JavaScript 7 features in browsers right now, as a matter of fact, because they're starting to experiment. Uh, Object Observe is a JavaScript 7 feature uh, that is now in Chrome that you can sort of play with. Are there any dogs out there, dog browsers that just aren't playing nice? Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say not playing nice, but I would definitely say that Safari takes a, 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 a hands-off approach until the final spec is out there. They're not very keen on experimenting. Okay. They're sort of a, they like to hang back and wait for the final spec to be done before they do work. And that's totally a defensible position. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's important also because, you know, the standards committee, we know we make mistakes. We want to be able to get features out there into people's hands so that early adopters can play with them and give us feedback. I think that's an important part of the evolution of the web. Jafar, how many of the browser folks are on these committees that are like directly involved in the design work for the standard? Absolutely all of them. Um, yeah, because of course they have a tremendous vested interest, right? And when we come up with features, we, we think about things, you know, we think about feedback from browser implementers, right? I mean, can this feature be optimized? Can it perform? You know, how much pain is this going to cause browser implementers? And so that's not the only consideration, but it is a consideration. Do you, uh, hear often from Douglas Crockford? Doug left the uh, uh, committee, so he's no longer on the TC39, but he was on the TC39 for uh, for a time, uh, I believe, when he was working at Yahoo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, he's got... You know, Doug's got opinions, uh, and uh, and the, certainly, you know, a lot of those opinions hold quite a bit of sway uh, with the TC39. But, you know, Doug's opinions change, and that's not a knock on Doug. I mean, uh, I think, you know, it's, it's good that it's good. people's opinions change over time, right? Yeah. I mean, I know, he, you know, he, what he used to think, even even you look at the good parts, he doesn't currently believe even of all the things in the good parts are the good parts. I mean, he's changed his opinion over time. Yeah. And so, you know, we key off of a lot of the great ideas that Doug had, and I think there was a lot of great contributions to ES5 uh, based on Doug. Doug's ideas. I think the biggest contribution that Doug has made in the community is really, you know, let JS be JS. I mean, I think if you look at yeah. the, what happened with the ES4 timeframe, a lot of people were trying to j- turn JS into something else. And I think it's important, and I think a lot of the people on the committee have this perspective, that it's important to just accept the fact that JS is not Java, it's not C Sharp, mm. it's a language with its own strengths, and we should embrace and extend Right. And we should take those strengths, admit the JavaScript's a different kind of language, take a look at its strengths and how we can better make those idioms that it chooses easy for people to use. And I think that's what a lot of the syntax you're going to see does. And that's the right thing to do. Not try and turn JavaScript into a different language. Sure. Let's take the good ideas and make them easier to use. What do you think has been the biggest challenge in getting this out the door? You know, it's just, I think the biggest challenge has been, I don't think there's any one big challenge, to be honest. I mean, I think there are big features. This is a huge release. I mean, we're talking classes, we're talking um, proxies, we're talking feature, features that are just, that required the entire spec to be really revised top to bottom. You know, we're just trying to do big things and big things take time. And, uh, you know, it's a consensus model. We don't have a benevolent dictator for life. You know, Brendan Eich does not play the role of this feature gets in and this feature doesn't get in. This is a consensus model. 
model and consensus models don't move quickly. Um, you know, it's TC39 is notably different from things like the what WG where, you know, the champion of a particular feature has a lot of power and he just kind of takes feedback, but in the end he kind of makes the decision. Um, you know, TC39 is very consultative body. And frankly, for something as important as a programming language, I wouldn't have it any other way. Mm. Yeah. These are definitely interesting. I keep having to think about JavaScript as a real language. This is weird. <laughs> but I also think that this is the the first time I looked at ES6 code. I'm like, that's JavaScript. It's it's completely different. You know, if you're doing it right, I think it does look uh, very, very different because we're trying to take the boilerplate code that you got to write today. I mean, if you want to do classical inheritance today, there's a bunch of boilerplate. We call it an incantation. You know, it's just something you got to remember. It's mm. magic. And what we've tried to do with these features, again, is sometimes it's also called reverse refactoring. What we're doing is we're taking the patterns that you are making and we're deriving language features from that that make it easier to write those boilerplate patterns again and again and again. And so it's not that you have to change your mental model. This hasn't become a different language. It absolutely hasn't. It's become a language with sweeter syntax for the patterns you're already using. You know, stepping up a level so you don't have to write out that incantation. Yeah, we don't want human compilers. Who wants to be yeah. a compiler, right? <laughs> uh, anything in there for testing purposes makes testing easier. I, you know, I wouldn't say necessarily, I, I wouldn't, there's not one particular aspect of programming that these features make easier. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's just going to be easier to write the things that you already write in JavaScript. Mm. I, I, there are some technologies which are somewhat disruptive, like that are really going to change the way in which you think. About, you know what? Actually, to, to be fair, a fee, I think a feature that could potentially help out with testing are things like proxies. So are you guys familiar with the proxy feature? Well, and tell maybe us. So the idea behind proxies, I think it's definitely one of the biggest features in JavaScript 6, and I'm really excited to see what people do with it. Um, think about it like this. If you've got, if you're familiar with the C sharp dynamic type, uh, mm -hmm. it's got a little bit in common with dynamic. Okay. Now, obviously, JavaScript's already a dynamic language, but the thing about dynamic that people, it's more than, you know, just allowing you to use dynamic types. What dynamic does in C sharp is that if you attempt to set a property on a dynamic object, somewhere there's actually a handler that gets invoked somewhere like a set property handler that you can override if you if you implement I believe it's iDynamic, you can sort of override and you can sort of intercept. So you can decide what happens when somebody sets a property on you. Hmm. Uh, it could be a property of any type, right? And so you, you basically get past the property somebody's trying to get set on you as well as the value they're going to try and set. And so it, it's really a form of metaprogramming because what you can do is you can fake that you've got all this data in memory when in reality you might just load it lazily on demand. Hmm. So you mentioned iObservable, and this is something that you really wanted to drive home about JS6, is that we have iObservable and what that allows you to do. Can we go through that one more time? Yeah, sure. So in JavaScript 6, we don't have Observable. What we have is Promise. But here, the key point I want to make here is that Promises are great, but they're not enough. There's still asynchronous sources of data mm. that send you more than one value. And so if you want to compose together streams of data with like DOM events, for example, you need another type. You need a type that could represent more than one value being pushed at you. And so what we're looking at for JavaScript 7 is we're looking at learning from what you guys did in the .NET platform with iObservable. And we're, we're looking at taking that type and bringing it into JavaScript 7 so and actually making it part of the language so that we can add syntax support for it. And what I mean by that is we've got syntactic support in C Sharp and now in JavaScript 6 for iteration. And in, in C Sharp, that's for each, right? And under the hood, that just yeah. means the iter you at request an iterator, you keep pulling values from it until it's done. That's how for each works. Mm -hmm. And in uh, JavaScript 6, 6, there's a new a loop called for of. And they didn't use for each or for in because that's actually used for uh, for reflection in JavaScript 6. So they had to come up with a different loop. And so they called it for of. And so you can loop over to the exact same thing pretty much in JavaScript 6 as it is in .NET. If you use for of, you loop over the items in an iterator and you pull items out until you're done. But what about if now that we have a type, iObservable, that we, you know, we, can we can steal from the .NET framework that allows us one type by which to model push streams, well, now we can add language support, just like promises allow us to add, add language support for waiting on a single value, like await and async. Mm -hmm. We can add language support for awaiting multiple values. So imagine there was a for on loop so that I could actually just loop over a WebSocket 
and, you know, just using four on, no callbacks required, and just do something with it. That's kind of, and that's the idea that inside of an async function, you could use for on. And not only that, if you, inside of an async function, if you just return, what comes out is a promise. But inside of an async function, you can also yield. And if you yield, the output is an observable. So this is all in seven, which we're, is going to be at, le- at least a year away. That's what you're saying. That's at least a year away. And at this point, it's just a proposal. It's at the very early stages, but it's exciting stuff. Sure and it's is. really taking the ideas in C sharp and we're kind of building on it. We're taking them even further uh, on JavaScript. Well, I'm kind of proud to be part of the C sharp community that can influence JavaScript. I mean, how many JavaScript programmers do you estimate there are in the world? Oh, geez. Bazillions. Uh, yeah, I think bazillions <laughs> is a pretty good estimate, actually. Um, I mean, I, I don't know a number offhand, but I can tell you that I think C Sharp has been a tremendously influential language. I mean, definitely it's influencing JavaScript, but along with other languages like Python and Ruby. Um, but, you know, I think yeah, there's wide acceptance for the idea that I think in the language design community that C Sharp is a pretty damn good language. Uh, yeah. Anders did a great job on C Sharp. And, you know, there's lots of a good balance of those, those elemental features in programming language, like being able to turn data into code with expression trees and functional concepts like link. You know, it's just very well, well designed the C Sharp language. One of my first loves is programming languages. And I think the JavaScript community is definitely going to be influenced by it. Yeah, I remember Kate Gregory telling us the influence that C Sharp have over C plus plus eleven. You know, like good language ideas are good language ideas, and I think it's beholden to us to grab onto them and say, "Yeah, that's a good way to work. We should implement more of that." Although I think I first saw that in JavaScript with reactive extensions. It's just like, "Hey, let's think about using JavaScript a little differently." Right. And I should clarify, you know, I should bring this full circle, this observable type we're talking about, where it's something that can push you multiple values and then finally say either I'm done or there was an error. Reactive extensions is a whole set of functions designed to glue observables together. And so they're sometimes called combinators, but that's not important. They're just functions. Mm -hmm. You can take two observable streams and glue them together into one observable stream. And it's a huge number of useful functions, more more functions you can even, more ways than you can imagine to combine observables together the reactive extension library provides. And that's extremely important because, I mean, if you think about what happens in a web app, in a front-end web app, I mean, 99% of the time, you're listening for an event, you're making an asynchronous request, and then you're playing an animation. Mm -hmm. And an observable can model all three of those things individually. And it doesn't matter where the event's coming from either. That might be a keystroke or mouse click from the user. It could be data coming across a web socket. It's all just events. Absolutely. And you can convert, you can, if you've got a promise API, it's trivial to convert that into an observable so that you can bind it together with event streams. That's the thing about an observable. It's like one type to bind them all. You can basically take any asynchronous push stream and convert it into an observable. And then you can use all the great functions in the reactive extensions library to declaratively build very large, what would otherwise be very complicated asynchronous programs in a way that they're readable and you can make sense of them. And they automatically do error propagation and that type of thing. So you don't need to manually worry about pushing errors through callbacks. It does all that stuff for you. That sounds wonderful. Well, I also want to plug uh, a, a tutorial that, that I have up, uh, which is at my uh, GitHub, J-H-U-S as in Sam, A-I-N as in Nathan. Uh, so you go to GitHub and you check out my GitHub. There is a Learn Rx tutorial where we teach you, we take you all the way from JavaScript arrays to observables and explain to you how to build complex asynchronous programs by just, and basically it's really about learning how to program without loops. If you can learn, because loops aren't really much good to you in async programming, yeah. right? at least not today. Maybe in JavaScript 7, we'll add loop support for async programming. But, you know, you know, today, learning to pro, using loops is actually your enemy if you want to do async programming in JavaScript. It's one of the most important things every JavaScript programmer has got to learn because there's no choice. You got to do async programming in JavaScript. You don't mm. have threads to rely on. Mm-hmm. And so we try and keep, we wean you as a developer off of loops and then on to functions like map and filter, or if you're familiar with link, that's select and where, and how you can use those functions to build complex asynchronous programs be, that don't rely on loops. Good deal. Yeah, what's interesting is the, that limitation of JavaScript to not control threads in the first place, like we're, we're now trying to talk everybody out of controlling threads. And thinking asynchronously and and uh, in in an observable pattern in languages where you could have controlled threads, like if you if you're creating a thread, you're going to hell. Don't do that. You know, <laughs> there's another way to go. And JavaScript doesn't have a choice. Like you're falling into the pit of success here. 
I, I think it absolutely is the pit of success. I can't tell you how much easier it is, frankly, when I'm dealing with asynchronous stuff than it is in JavaScript, than it is in C Sharp or Java, where you've got locking to worry about. Sometimes people call, you know, that's preemptive concurrency, where all of a sudden my code's running and just like right in the middle of a line of code, somebody else can take control. That's actually a really complicated world. It blows your mind too, because you, you, think that you have terra firma, right? <laughs> you know, it's kind of right. like an earthquake happens and you're like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, sh- the sand is shifting underneath you. And then that's a, that's a phenomenally complicated way to write code. It's very difficult to reason about that world. Mm. In JavaScript, what we have, it's single-threaded, but it, that doesn't mean you can't have some form of concurrency. It's, it's still concurrency. It's not parallelism. It's concurrency. And just to, to remind our audience, concurrency means I can do two or three things over the same period of time. Right. And parallelism means I can do two or three things at the exact same instant. And so when you say, look, I want to make a network request in JavaScript, well, that's going on somewhere, right? It's not happening necessarily on the same thread as when you're, you're doing other work, but eventually it'll call you back. Sometimes this is called cooperative concurrency because in JavaScript, nobody's going to interrupt me in the middle of my thread, right? I'm doing work. And when I decide I'm done, then, you know, I give up the one and only thread and then some other callback gets invoked when a network request comes back or, you know, a set timeout handler gets hit or something like that. It's kind of like two, it's, it's different pieces of code cooperating. Sure. Well, uh, Jafar, is there anything else that you want to talk about before we wrap this up? I mean, it's been amazing just sitting here listening to you talk. I could go on for hours, really. No, I mean, you know, it's been a real thrill. Uh, it's uh, I was a long fan of .NET Rocks, and uh, it's great to, to come on the radio show. I'd love to come on again anytime and tell you about uh, more of the future of JavaScript and things that are going on in the community. You can guarantee that's going to happen. Absolutely. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Transmit a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a time.